I had uh, the joy last week of being able to spend the majority of the week with uh, four other pastors that were in places from California to Virginia, sort of coast to coast. And one of the things that kept coming up during that time that we talked about was the, really sort of the basics of ministry, what takes place within a ministry. And, and there were two things that came up. And one of those that I think we've sort of covered here when we were in our study on First Peter, it was that the pastoral ministry is one of shepherding and the pastoral ministry is one of preaching the word. Now that sounds very simple, but the sad reality is how unique that is. That in some sense we'd even have to be talking about it and that that's a distinction. And yet as man to man was kind of talking, one of the things that came up was that people were coming to their churches because the churches they were coming from, nobody was shepherding them. Nobody was preaching the word to them. And that was on my mind this week when I sort of found out at the last minute I would be preaching to you. <laughs> but it is something that's been on my mind for a while as we've been thinking about elders, and as we've been thinking about deacons. One element of that, shepherding, preaching the word, I just want to remind you of from 1 Peter 5, where we were at not too long ago. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, you'll remember those words, shepherd the flock of God among you. He's exhorting the elders there, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. That's shepherding. He's addressing shepherding. But what about that other component of the pastoral ministry a biblical ministry of preaching the word. I want you to turn to 2 Timothy this morning, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And I want us to consider how we understand a biblical ministry, a biblical view of ministry, so that as all these ideas and all these church backgrounds are going through our head, as we gather here from all these experiences that we've had and places that we've been, that we would be on the same page as it regards biblical ministry in the local church. And, and just to sort of exemplify for you why I think this is so important, I just want to look around when I ask this question. Who, who was here five years ago? Would you raise your hand? That's not many people. So five years ago, those people were here. The vast majority of people have come since then. You've come from all sorts of different backgrounds. Are we on the same page as it regards what we're talking about, a biblical view of ministry? Timothy puts us on that page in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Look at the text. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desire. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. What is the job description of the pastor? 
And who gets to make that decision? The, the reality is that I think we can see what contemporary cultural culture thinks the job description of a pastor is if we just look at job descriptions that are posted online. There's one that I want to read to you that I read to the small group on Wednesday night a, a few weeks ago, and it, it's so insane that it's worth letting you know what some people think the job description of a pastor is. This came out, I think, about four years ago. And I love to send this to guys whenever they're asking me if I know of any position that's open somewhere. I send them this. Listen. Quote, I'll just say this church. I'm not going to name the church. I don't think the church even exists anymore. Is looking for a pastor who teaches like Craig Groeschel or Andy Stanley or even a bit like Stephen Furtick. This offer is going to be nothing like any other job post. That's true. This city that's in Colorado, stay away from Colorado, he says, is asleep because the churches are asleep. He says something else that's true. People are hungry, but the spiritual food in the churches here are without flavor or life. That's his conclusion. He says the pastors are beautiful people, and they have heart, but they need some blockbuster sermons. When you watch a sermon from Craig Groeschel, Andy Stanley, or Stephen Furtick, and I'll just add in here, don't watch those sermons if you don't know who they are, Okay. He says, you feel like you were fed. He doesn't say that you were fed. He says, listen, why can't we have that in a church without playing the videos from the above pastors? Here is our concept. If a worship leader can take a song from Chris Tomlin and play it just like the album, and that is 100% expected in the church, why can't you as a pastor copy or do a word-for-word -word of a sermon from Craig Rochelle? Surely add 10% of your own style just like the band does. That's what people think of the pastoral ministry. Is that a pastor? They want to be fed here. They've never been fed. I say that's a church that's looking for an actor, an actor who plays the part of a wolf. Hopefully that job description is rare. I want to give you another job description that's more common and very tempting. On one popular website, this was the, the top job that was there. And this is how it's described. This is so very common. This is the job description of the pastor, what they're looking for. Provide primary, spiritual, visionary, and strategic leadership to the diverse team of pastors, staff, leaders, volunteers, members, and beyond. Lead an executive team to lead a world-class staff and together with the executive team, establish systems and programs to maintain health through a balance of discipleship, evangelism, and outreach. Provide innovative vision and leadership. Champion the church's heart and strategies towards its global partners and church planning initiatives. Demonstrate a commitment to community and culture engagement. Provide organizational leadership of hundreds of employees. Shepherd the body through intentional and strategic approaches. That's common. The only definitions and motivations of an increasingly secular culture that they can offer for pastoral ministry sound like secular jobs. Meaning, when they define the pastoral ministry, what they're thinking, it sounds a lot like being a CEO of a publicly traded company or the lead at an internet startup or maybe an owner of a small business. So then, should it really surprise us when we look at pastors that they dress that way and that they act that way? And that they approach ministry like this. 
and that they interact with their people as though they're a celebrity or a CEO or a social influencer. All of that, I think, is easy to critique from a distance, and we can laugh about those things, and we can see some of the error in those things, having just read Second Timothy, but re the reality is the temptation is real. And I think it's real for all of us. In some sense, pastors are drawn towards this. This is where prestige is. This is what looks good. This is what the, the, the culture likes. And the reality is people that are part of the congregation are drawn to this sort of a ministry model. You might come into the church this morning, and you're looking for that, and you're like, this is it? We're looking for what we're familiar with. We're looking for what we see whenever it is we go to work. Do we understand what the authority on the matter has to say? And a biblical understanding of the matter, of biblical ministry and the pastor's role can only come from one place. It can only come from the Word of God. And look at the text here before us in 2 Timothy. It's no accident that what I just read to you in that section is found after a description of Scripture that you know very well in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That comes before Paul lays out Timothy's obligation here and his work in the ministry. And just note, Paul didn't say what we are found saying. Paul didn't say what he could have said that we find ourselves saying. This is not within the context of secular employment. He's not going, you know, Timothy, the Roman Empire really gives us a good example of strategic leadership that you ought to employ in the church. He, he doesn't go, Timothy, you ought to go about the work with the administrative mindset of innovative vision of a provincial governor in Rome. He doesn't say, Timothy, take the principles that you know very well from Lydia's purple fabric business that was so successful and apply it to the church. What, what Paul unpacks in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, follows what he has said already in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Look at those verses, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. This is your context. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Biblical ministry is built upon Scripture. The question is, is that what you believe? Just put that to the test a little bit. What is it that you tell people whenever they say, tell me about your church? What's the temptation? You know how many people were there on Sunday morning? Let me tell you about the size of it. One pastor that we met with uh, this week, he said, whenever people ask him, what's the size of your church? He just says, 3,000 people. And they go, wow. And then he goes, no, nah, I'm just kidding. It's only like 100. <laughs> and just see what the response is, right? Oh, well, can I still say wow to that? Are we tempted to tell them about the children's ministry and how incredible it is or of the missionaries that we support all around the world? What I would suggest you tell them, church, is that we're striving to look like 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And by God's grace, there's progress in that. That the elders have and are growing in their biblical view, that the congregation has a biblical view of ministry, and they're both supporting that work. 
And friend, that sort of a church is going to look completely different than all the churches that you see around us because it's a biblical ministry of shepherds that's supported by the whole congregation that's found in those verses there. And that's going to reveal a very peculiar people in this world. A world in which we've watched, you've watched as those that we thought were so very faithful that were leading churches have become apostate. You've watched them fall. You've heard them preach and you've thought, as I've thought, they're preaching truth. And then we've watched them veer from that. That's not unusual. We may think this is a bizarre time that we live in. That's not unusual. That's Paul's situation here in 2 Timothy. The situation is Paul's looking all around him, and really what's his final letter, it's all deteriorating. One person after another is being revealed as apostate. Look in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy in verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all those who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Look in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection's already taken place, and they've upset the faith of some. These are people who are preaching something different than Paul's been preaching. They're preaching something very different than what the Word of God says. And the providence of God would have it that in the midst of, of these number of those who've proven to be apostate, this is what's going to lead to this letter here of 2 Timothy where Paul's going to lay out the biblical definition of the pastor's ministry in urging Timothy, Timothy, you must remain faithful. All of this is going on around Paul. He's talking to Timothy Look back in chapter 1. Look at what he's saying all along here to Timothy. Verse 8. Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Look at what he says in verse 13 and 14. Timothy, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure that's been entrusted to you. In chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. Suffer hardship, Timothy, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Look in chapter 2, verse 15. Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Timothy, stay faithful. And how? And connected in all those. They're all tied to the Word of God. Out of the ashes of the burned out ministries of some of the men that he's talking about here that once stood alongside Paul comes this clarity about what biblical ministry looks like. Friend, this ought to be our prayer. This ought to be our priority. And this ought to be what we promote as a church. This is laying it out for us. The first thing I want you to see is verse 1, the incentive for ministry. What is it that motivates ministry? What is it that spurs it forward, that drives it onward? The incentive for ministry here comes with the serious charge before divine witnesses and divine events. God ordains the preacher's ministry here, and he's the witness to which that ministry is centered upon and before whom this ministry is carried out. The charge comes in view of him whose word it is that Timothy is instructed to preach in verse 2. So just note how this sets up within the verses that surround it. Chapter 
3, verse 16, all Scripture is inspired by who? God. This is God's Word that's breathed out of His mouth. Chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus to do what? Chapter 4, verse 2, preach the Word. All of this is tied together here. There's three components that we see in this incentive for ministry. The first is this, that this is a serious charge. He says, I solemnly charge you. Paul is emphatically here appealing to Timothy. This charge is directed at him who is called to preach. It's from him who has apostolic authority. And the word that he uses here that comes at the very first of the sentence, this charge, it's structured in such a way to convey not only a present action, but an ongoing action, a charge that is now for you in your life, Timothy, and that's going to continue on throughout your life as long as you're on this earth. Paul, note just from this, he hasn't even told him what the charge is. But he's conveyed it serious and it's continuous. Timothy, you have a very serious obligation. You have a responsibility. You have a stewardship that's going to mark every day for the rest of your life. Timothy's heard similar things from Paul when he meant to emphasize something. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias. He says in chapter 6, verse 13 of 1 Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testifies the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or approach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says even here in chapter 2, uh, verse 14 of 2 Timothy, that he solemnly charges to solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. But keep in mind, this is Paul's last letter to Timothy. Paul's life is being poured out. Look in chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. This is the last time Timothy's going to hear those words, I charge you. This is the final charge from Paul, and this charge has priority and it has significance, and it's underscored by what Paul says next. The second component that we see here is the divine witness. In the presence of God, the, the Greek would translate, I charge you before God and Christ Jesus. So if this isn't serious enough in his final charge, Paul is invoking this divine witness here to the charge that he's about to give Timothy. This is a God-centered view of ministry. It's meant to, to bring God front and center to Timothy's mind as he's thinking about what Paul's going to charge. Timothy is to be mindful of this charge that it's given to him in a way that it's witnessed by God himself. All who are charged to preach the word have this serious obligation. They do so before a divine witness in view of an end times eschatological reality, a reality of all that God is going to bring to pass that you see in this text. And look, if you had any letter that was coming from Paul, it's going to carry weight, is it not? This is coming from an apostle. But look, he makes it infinitely weightier than if it was only coming from him by what he says here. Timothy, he's saying, this is more than about serving Paul, more than about being pleasing to your friend, more than about being pleasing to your mentor, the faithful apostle Paul, whose life is drawing to a close. This is about God. This charge has to do with God. This is a God-minded view of ministry so that when Paul's life concludes, guess what? This charge doesn't conclude. 
It doesn't end. This is before God and it will remain on. The temptation I think that we are confronted with when we think about ministry and we think about pastoral ministry and church ministry is that we act like Paul has said here, I charge you in the presence of your congregation. I charge you in the presence of your, maybe a denomination or your peers, or I charge you in the presence of your own ego or your prestige or your career potential. Because why? You know people are watching The temptation for all of us, whether it's the preacher or the congregation that that is part of the ministry, is to neglect the primary audience and elevate the secondary audience. And that's incredibly dangerous. The, The divine witness here impacts the ministry. The one whose eyes are watching and who you care about impacts the ministry. And it's only a God-focused, Christ-centric approach to ministry that's going to be faithful in all areas, including the call to biblical discipline. Apart from an awareness of a God-focused, Christ-centered charge to fulfill ministry, like you see Paul giving Timothy here, church discipline will either be ignored because we're primarily focused on what? Pleasing people. And we don't want to make anybody mad. Man is our motive in that way. Or, as it regards church discipline, it will be abused. We'll be acting like legalists or Pharisees because we're primarily focused on self-righteousness or self-preservation. So what's our motive then? Self. But a God-focused, Christ-centered ministry that exercises church discipline will be acting in faith in response to what God has said from Scripture for that purpose of glorifying God by maintaining purity in the local church, 1 Corinthians 5, 6. It'll do this edifying believers by deterring sin, 1 Timothy 5, 20. It'll do this for the purpose of promoting the spiritual welfare of the offending believer by calling him or her to return to a biblical standard of doctrine and conduct, Galatians 6, 1. Paul frames the seriousness of the charge in view of judgment, Christ returning in glory, and kingdom here. Future events that are shaping the present reality that motivates and drives biblical ministry, propelling it onward in faith and in an enduring way that you don't see amongst those who became apostate and who fell away. One with apostolic authority here is charging Timothy, yes. And yet Paul's highlighting that this charge is being witnessed by a far superior authority in these imminent events that shape ministry right now. You may look at that and go, that's great for you, but what in the world does that have to do with me in the church who's outside of the elder room, outside of the staff room? Friends, this is a letter to pastors, but it's in your hands. This is a letter that's not only to pastors. This is where I just, it may sound silly, but those three elements that you would pray, prioritize these things, and promote these things. Pray that those that God has called to lead you might ever be held captive to him who has called them, that they would know the seriousness of their calling, that they would be mindful that Christ bears witness to these things, that they would be driven here by Christ coming, that the elders would be a faithful example, that they would not, that they would not be drawn by that temptation that we've talked about, that there would be other events in another audience that would be pulling at their heart. Pray for your elders and prioritize what Scripture is revealing here. This has to be a priority in the local church. This has to be valued by the church. 
that all of us would realize the, the, uh, what's of first importance here, what the Bible says is of first importance, that we wouldn't elevate secondary things. And the reality is this may mean that you need to rethink your perspective of ministry in the local church. The reality, friend, it, it, this may be hard for you to accept, but the reality is the elder's primary audience is not you. The elder's primary audience is not the visitor that comes in the door. The elder's primary audience is not the city. Our primary concern, our primary eyes, our primary audience is God, to be faithful to Him. Consider how then the truth of a God-centered ministry just provides correction in your life. That, That impacts you. How you commit to the ministry of the local church, and from that, how you serve, how you give, and what it is that you encourage here. These things need to be in the right order. You need to prioritize. You need to promote. You need to promote what 2 Timothy 4.1 is revealing here, that you would serve towards this end, that you would be able to explain what Paul is describing here to others as you attempt to tell them about your church and how you serve in your church and why you serve in your church. The, the, the end summary of, of all this in chapter 4, verse 1, and really the same thing in chapter 4, verse 2, is that you act like you believe it. It's here before us, but how many churches don't believe this? There, there is, as we're looking at this, no greater motivating factor in the Christian ministry than to know that the charge from the work comes, yes, before God, and in view of all that God says that He will do in the future. But there's one more component that I want you to consider here. This is not only to strike some sort of a reverential fear in Timothy. Certainly, I think that's healthy. It might cultivate a healthy reminder that the ministry is motivated by an awe of Him whose word that we're called to preach, but... But I want you to consider this charge in view of the divine witness and the reality of what's to come side by side with fear and awe. There ought to be a motivating factor as it regards love, love. And in some sort of a sense that he'd be saying, I solemnly charge you in the presence of him who is holy. Have reverential fear, yes, in him who came to save you, Timothy. That is a joyful opportunity for the minister to serve God. For all of us to support that, a a biblical ministry serving God and honoring God in love, knowing that he's watching, knowing that he's commissioned it, that that he is there, that the man of God that's receiving this charge, he gets to be a servant. I didn't say he has to be, but he gets to be. It's an honor to serve him who saves you, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ministry is in service to him. And if an elder loves him, he wants to express love knowing that he's been charged in the presence of the one who saved him by grace. That alone ought to stir affections in the heart, a love that's compelled to do all the things that the apostate don't do, to to endure hardship, to persevere in teaching, and to remain faithful. A love that's also found, I think, in the whole church body that supports a ministry that's described here like this, promoting it, prioritizing it, praying for it. This is a biblical ministry established upon the truth that knows a distinct privilege of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true, friend, whether you're an elder, whether you're a deacon, or whether you've not been recognized in any of those two offices, and yet you serve in the worship ministry, audiovisual, whether you're the person that cleans the bathroom or trims the hedges out there. You have the joy of serving Jesus Christ. You serve because you love Him. That's radically different. Think for 
this a moment. That's radically different than the CEO pastor who leads because it comes with prestige and a bank account. And, oh, you might get asked to be on a podcast. And, oh, you might get to publish a book. And, oh, you might be asked to speak at some big event. Church, pray for shepherds to fulfill their ministry, not because they're company men, but because they're God's man. Not because they want to be known for their success, but because they want to be known for their faithfulness. Not because they have a vision of big churches and big ministries, but because they know a big God. Not because they lust for attention from others, but because they truly love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a Christ-centered view of ministry that propels it forward and really sustains it. The man of God here, look at how this lays out again. Adequate and equipped for every good work by Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.17. Called to preach Scripture, 2 Timothy 4.2. Fulfills his ministry with a heart that's held captive to God, 2 Timothy 4.1. The charge here comes with the incentive that is encouraging the work. Now, number two, I want you to see the task that's defined. This is the work of ministry. Number two, verse two, the work of ministry. This is the substance of the charge. He's been charging him all along and he's not told him to do anything yet. Do you see that? I charge you. And he connects these elements of the charge, but he hasn't told him anything. Here he's telling him the substance, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Who is it that defines the work of the ministry? Is it the unbiblical examples that we say have achieved success in our secular world? Is, is that what we're trying to model and replicate? Is it pop culture in some way? Is it really just the whims and fancies of all of us so long as we have a Christian theme that we might just add an adjective of gospel to it and just go do that? It's gospel ministry. I would argue that all of those in some way genuinely entice every one of us. And yet all of those move us away from the God-revealed, God-defined work that's found here in verse 2, in those words, preach the word. I think about what Paul has done here already in this letter. He's already described how Scripture influences Timothy in his ministry. He's praised him in chapter 3, verse 10, for following his teaching. He's urged him to continue in what he's learned in chapter 3, verse 14. He's commanded him to retain the standard of sound words in that same verse. He's called him to entrust what he heard from Paul to faithful men who could teach others in chapter 2, verse 2. And he's insisted that Timothy accurately handle the word of truth in chapter 2, verse 15. And now it's this, this final charge and the content of this charge, it has to do with the word of God once again. There are five imperatives from God through his word that define the work of the man of God. And the first one and the primary one that influences all the others here is preach the word. This is the dominant task that he is given. This is the one that links to the four that follow here, the four other imperatives. It's amplified by the second imperative. It relates closely to those that are tied to it in the third and fourth that connect to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And it's bookend here by the final that's to be done with patience and what? Instruction and teaching. The verb here for preach is herald, announce, publicly proclaim. It, it means to announce in a formal, formal or official manner by means of a herald. It means always with a suggestion of formality, gravity, and on authority which must be listened to. 
So not only does it impact the one, the herald whose mouth it's coming from, but it also impacts the one who's hearing it. It must be listened to. A herald in the Greek world in which Paul was writing all this, he actually held a significant role in society. Rulers had heralds that they entrusted with messages, messages that the herald was under an obligation to take to the people without alteration. It wasn't like the ruler could just email everybody or drop a letter in the mail to everybody. He sent the herald out. And the herald was accountable for the exact representation and reproduction of that message from the ruler with no room for personal interpretation and proclamation. Paul is charging Timothy here, do that work. Do the work of a herald. You represent someone else. You don't have a right to alter the message. You know this. There are a lot of people who are publicly proclaiming something. There are a lot of places that have gathered this morning that are heralding something. You, you get the substance being things like ideologies and worldviews. Friends, act of proclamation, he says, is not up for debate. He gives us what's to be proclaimed, and it's this, the word. The word. It's as though if we think about the herald picture that the king has spoken. The king has spoken. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This is God-breathed. And this is the only thing at the end of the day that's really of any substance in the preacher's medicine cabinet. You might come to him as sort of a doctor for the soul to need help for some situation you have, and he hears you explain your condition, and then he goes over, he leaves you at the table, he goes over to the medicine cabinet, and he opens it up, and the only thing in there is, guess what? A Bible. It's the only thing you need. Paul's saying this is sufficient. He doesn't say preach the word and this and this and this and this and this. He says preach the word and that's it. Why would he think that way? Why preach the word as opposed to anything else? Because this is superior to everything else that you could possibly proclaim. Because this is superior in its origins. You do not need what comes from man. You need what comes from God. You do not need what comes from this head here in front of you. You need what comes from the word of God. And because at the end of the day, this is superior in what it's capable of doing, of doing. Will you think with me about that for a moment? What is preaching the word? What is the word capable of doing? It tells us. The first thing is it leads us to salvation. 2 Timothy 3.15, it's already in this book. You've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. I've told some of you this, but to illustrate this, whenever we said we're going to focus on Ephesians chapter 2 for the conference, so many of you came up and said, Ephesians chapter 2 is instrumental in my salvation. That, that's not shocking. It's doing what the Word says it will do. It will lead you to salvation. Listen to what comes in Ephesians 1, 13. Paul says, in him, talking to believers, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Listen to Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Listen to Romans 10.17. So faith comes from hearing. That means something's being preached. And hearing by the word of Christ. Galatians 3.2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Friends, if we truly care about souls, 
if you truly care about people's salvation, then preaching the word has to be priority in the church. Woe to the church that does not prioritize preaching the word. You may have phenomenal outreach ministries, extensive mission programs, and numerous church plants. And the reality is that may be the substance of your preaching. It may not be Bible. It may not be the word. That may be all that you're talking about. What will the judgment be upon those who've been given much and because of their innovative vision desires and leadership and phenomenal organizational skills to develop a top-notch staff, they forsook preaching what leads to salvation. We, we must preach what Paul preached, and we must prioritize what Paul prioritized. And you see both of those in 1 Corinthians 15.1. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of what? First importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. What's Paul doing? He's setting the example for us of what he's telling Timothy to do right here. He sets the example of a ministry that's constructed on the premise of the priority of the preaching of the Word. And he falls in line with Jesus doing the same thing in Matthew 4, verse 23. He does the same thing that you see the man who was formerly demon-possessed doing in Mark chapter 5, verse 20. He does the same thing you see all throughout Acts. If, if the Word of God in preaching it has the power to lead people to salvation, do you see why Paul might say in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, "'Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel.'" Why would you want to preach anything else that only leaves sinners dead? Give them what leads to life. And not only does it lead to life, but we can also say that it promotes sanctification. It leads to salvation. It promotes sanctification. Once Christians have life, why would you just sort of leave them immature and where they're at? You give them the rich soil of the word so that their roots can sink deep and draw forth nourishment and change them by strengthening them and cleansing them. John 17, 17, you know this. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The picture is similar to the one conveyed in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 27, where Paul speaks there of sanctified, cleansed by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle. What does the church look like where water is only occasionally dripping from a faucet in a dusty and dry world? The church looks dusty and dry. Like a physical body that starved of food begins to show signs of weakness, so the church does the same that starved of the word. It shows signs of being vulnerable and growing weak and rarely promoting Christ-likeness. You shouldn't be surprised at some of the filth that comes out of churches and their lack of holiness. It's in direct connection with their not preaching the Word. If the Word is not preached, spiritual growth is stunted and hindered. What else does it do? It gives a knowledge of God. If the last few weeks in the Psalms have given you anything, I hope that it's given you that. Psalms 6 through 10 demonstrated the benefit of knowing God, and each of those you thought about how this knowledge of God came from Scripture, 
that David possessed. And God has chosen to reveal himself here in Scripture, not in a general sense, but in a specific sense through his word. It's the instrument by which he makes known the riches of his glory. It also, number four, stirs affections that lead to worship. In Psalm 119, a psalm whose subject is the word, the psalmist expresses affection such as this. Psalm 119, verse 7, I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. Psalm 119, verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. It does something else that I want you to see. Number five, and it reveals the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, or 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And what Logan helped us with last night, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's the same idea that's in Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's directing you to the will of God. So this is what the word is capable of doing. Leads to salvation, promotes sanctification, gives a knowledge of God, stirs affection, reveals God's will. I want to read to you something John Murray said about the word. He said this, we must bring forth from its inexhaustible treasure and exposition, proclamation, and application. Application to every sphere of life. What is the wisdom and power of God for man in this age? In all the particularity of his need, as for man in every age, there will be then commanding relevance, for it will be the message from God in the unction and power of the Spirit, not derived from the modern mentality, but declared to the modern mentality in all the desperation of its anxiety and misery. That's the difference between preaching the Word and preaching something else. Why would you want to preach anything else? What could you preach that would possibly be better than this? Do you see when you realize what the word is capable of doing, why Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them. Your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. If we tie that to what Paul's saying here, the preachers to be feeding believers the word through proclamation so that you might consume the word. And if we tie that back to the charge of verse 1, the urgency is expressed, preach the word because Christ will judge the living and the dead. Preach the word because Christ is returning in glory. Preach the word because his kingdom is coming. That There's an urgency there. People need to hear this. If we do not preach the word, then really what difference does it make how many churches we plant and how many missionaries we support and how many pastors we raise up and how much influence that we have? Those churches, missionaries, and pastors will likely not be doing the work as God defines it because like begets like. Something else will be priority to them. But can I encourage you, can I encourage you just for a moment as you're thinking about all these things, can I tell you how by God's grace and our membership's conviction, I believe a 2 Timothy 4 two, we've grown in depth and spiritual nature. A few years ago, you know this, those of you who've been here the last five years, you made it a priority for the pastor to leave the bank and go full-time at the church. I think that was a financial decision that was impacted by the charge of preach the word. We want you to preach the word. 
then at the most unusual time when nobody would have thought this would have been a good idea at all, the, at the beginning of COVID, the elders agreed to hire this guy sitting over here who would help me free up time to be able to study to preach the word and himself give us another person who could come and preach the word to us. And then many of you don't even know this, but every Tuesday afternoon at 3.30, this lady over here stops by my office and says, give me things to do so that you don't have to do them so that you can go into the study to preach the word. And you have no idea how many times throughout the years, Jessica has done the same thing and said, tell me what you need me to do so I can send you to the study. And so many of you doing the same thing, convicted by 2 Timothy 4.2, taking up the responsibilities that are out there to free a man to study the scriptures in order to preach. So much service that happens within our church supports the command that's given here, preach the word. We're going to quickly go through the rest of these because they connect to that main dominant charge. Be ready. Be ready relates to preaching the word. This is how it's to be carried out, that there's a sense of preparedness and persistence having to do with Timothy's alertness to every opportunity that's before him. It relates to all the activities involved in the work of ministry and preaching the word. When is he to be ready? The text tells you in season and out of season, simply this, when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. And friend, since March 2020, it seems like it's been very inconvenient to preach the word. And yet because of March 2020, the floodgates have been opened online where there's more expository preaching than ever before. We must be ready. Paul's urging that here. Pray for this. Pray for this. Prioritize this as Paul prioritizes this and promote this amongst us as a body of believers. Father, we thank you for the word that you have given us. You have indeed spoken you have indeed breathed out your word, and it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Lord, let us not only confess this, but let us live this in practical ways together as a group of believers. Let the gospel be proclaimed here that leads people to salvation. And even this morning, Lord, Lift the veil from their eyes so that they may see the beauty of Christ, that they may be drawn to him, seeing their greatest need met on the man on the cross who, right, who rose from the dead. This is our desire, that this be our priority, that this be our emphasis, that this define our church, proclaiming the word of God, living the word of God, applying the word of God, saturated as a ministry, as a church by the word of God. What a display of faith. Find us faithful, we pray. Be glorified by this. In Christ's name, amen.